0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 166. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and back with me this week, uh, no surprise since it is not an even-numbered podcast, uh, is Jay Pestracelli, my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Sega Financial. Jay, how are you doing this week?
1: Good, Derek. Great to be back. It is an even number. 166 is an even number, right?
0: Okay, well, it's not like top of the hour, bottom of the hour. So you missed 160, you missed 165. (laughs) You're never... Yeah, you're never on those, but
1: you, uh, right. I pretend- gotcha. I gotcha. Yes. I was going by the strict definition of even versus odd, but I totally get what you're talking about. It's good I feel to like back it's
0: kinda like yeah, good to have you back. I feel like it's kinda like, you know, you're in Florida. The people who don't want to go to Disney on a Saturday, they they always go like on a Tuesday. You always join the podcast on the off times. There's some method to your madness, I'm sure, there, right? There
1: is. And I have a method when to go to Disney and Universal. It's The best time to go is Labor Day weekend for some reason, right? It's, you know, who's taking a vacation Labor Day right before school starts, right? So, you don't you're not getting the South American crowd coming in because they're just finishing up and you got the American crowd just getting ready for school. Labor Day. That's my advice. That might be the best piece of information I give out on the podcast today. Disney Labor Day.
0: Everybody should write that down. You know, I do remember one time. And both of us went to uh, to school in the Northeast. You know, we always started school after Labor Day. My parents one time we went to di- we flew down to Florida. This probably was in the late seventies, but it was the first week of school. Like they let me go to school a little bit late. I think the statute of limitations is up on that. Uh, it was in the nineteen seventies, but there was nobody there. So maybe that's right. a, another little a that's little thing it. as well. So
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's some good news and. Let's get it's to, so the, <laughs> what's, what's that,
1: So, you know, maybe not go Memorial Day. That's that's not a great week to go. Yeah.
0: yeah so speaking of of tips and news, and I don't know, I'm going to bring this up. Let's start here. Is bad news good news? And, and I'm going to put this into the, let me set the table and then let's have some, some back and forth discussion on it. Uh, Deutsche Bank seems to be calling for a recession, not seems to be. They think there's going to be a recession. They didn't say it's tomorrow. I think they're saying in 23 or by 24. They're the most negative on the street. Goldman Sachs, uh, GDP comes out Friday. Of course, when everyone in our audience is listening to this, GDP were to be out. Goldman Sachs has Q1 estimate of only a half percent growth. Uh, and then GDP now, the Atlanta Fed, you know, now cast, you know, what what is it right now based upon the information? They're 0.4%. I think the street consensus is something like 1.5%, although that might be lower. Jay, I bring this up because, uh, okay, there's a lot of stuff here. We could talk, we could go stagflation. Let's hold it off for now. But if we get a lower print in GDP, does that help the market in a weird way? Because does that say that the Fed can't do too much or are they in the box? What are your thoughts, Jay?
1: Well, yeah. So when you've listened to the biggest talks on the streak, uh, street, uh, like Bullard, for example, he has been saying the market can handle 50, 75 basis points. And that's, that's really what started this latest move uh, down, right, uh, uh, in the market. Uh, when was that? It was like the 20th, right? Uh, April 20th. And it's because the Assumption was the market can handle if we're really aggressive in raising rates. If that story changes because GDP is not as high as expected or even, you know, there's a greater chance of a recession, you know, that has to change the tune. Right. That was their justification. So I do think you've got the scenario where, uh, a, you know, lower growth in the U.S. economy uh, will potentially slow down how aggressive the Fed can be. Now, I don't know, like bad news is still bad news, right? Like you and I have been talking about the fact that, you know, all of the the pieces that existed last year that caused the market to be pretty bullish have are still hanging around, right? Relatively low rates and good corporate earnings, in other words, growth. You know, those things have still been around. But if that goes away, I still think it's it's it, it could actually be bad news. Bad news could be bad news, but I do see your point of saying bad news could be good news because right now this market is really being driven by the Fed more than anything else.
0: I mean, I guess the question is, how far is the Fed? You know, to show uh, to quote Sean Connery in The Untouchables, what are you prepared to do? What is the Fed prepared to do? Are they willing to cause a mild? you know, recession. I think there's a lot of, you know, people on the street. And and I'm one of those who thinks the Fed can go too far. And I'm not sure you and I have been on record on this podcast saying, we don't think raising rates will necessarily help inflation because it is a supply-driven issue. So I guess it's what are they prepared to do? And recessions all don't have to be 1929, 2008. But I don't know, like, does, uh, I think they're feeling the heat, so they have to raise rates and that's why they're talking tough. But if we get a, a, you know, really slow growth, does that start to bring into stagflation, you know, into the conversation? I don't know, Jay. I mean, that, that is a consideration, right?
1: Well, yeah. I, I didn't know if you're going to go with, you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight quote when you started with the untouchables. But I think, I do think you bring up the, the, a really valuable point here, Derek, that, are we really going to affect inflation um, by raising rates? And I listen. I think there's some absolute yes yeses to that. Uh, we just heard a story of uh, a friend of ours uh, uh, who bought property, right? And he's paying now six percent for his, his you know the mortgage, and he had to put down two points. And it's you know those kinds of numbers are going to slow down economic activity for sure, but. You know the real driver I, I don't you know i don't necessarily think the real driver has been uh you know entirely the real estate market i mean there's a lot of other things that has pushed inflation higher you got russia ukraine i don't think the feds going to impact them very much you've got china putting you know more lockdowns in place which is going to you know reduce the amount of shipping that comes out of that country i don't think the feds gonna be able to affect that and so all of those things wrapping it together you know, this has been our. This really has been the thing we've talked about all year. Is the Fed going to make a mistake raising too fast? It almost feels like there's, you know, they're responding to a little public pressure. I'm not going to say political pressure. I'm going to say public pressure, meaning the the you know the Wall Street populace here. That you know, there's a lot of people out there saying you got to raise rates because inflation's out of control. I'm not sure that's the right way to go. And keeping the the economy strong and keeping it uh, uh, giving it the ability to to work its way through the, you know, what we're going through from a geopolitical standpoint might be a better choice than raising, what, five times over the next two meetings, right? That seems a little excessive.
0: You know, it's interesting with with the cause for inflation, and you mentioned the Russia-Ukraine thing. I, I'm going to tra- be contrarian on here, and I'm going to say that alone didn't cause inflation to go up. Government's response to it may be added to inflation, meaning some of the, the you know, I, I was going to say the, the embargo. We're not doing an embargo, but the the sanctions, things like that. So I, I think left in on its own device, you, know, you can make the argument, you know, wheat prices and and energy. Although I I saw a note in Bloomberg today that I guess some European countries are are paying for oil in in rubles, so. I mean, they're, they're still getting oil. I don't know that it's, it's hurt the supply. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also, you know, I mentioned stagflation. I'm not calling stagflation. And there's a little bit of, I don't want to say controversy, but some people look at stagflation as, okay, inflation that's rising and growth that's slowing. It doesn't necessarily have to be negative. Other people say, well, wait a second, there's got to be a third component to be stagflation and that's higher unemployment. I'm not, I tend to agree with the former rather than the latter, but Jay, I, I said two things there. I want you to be able to react to, to any or, or both of those too.
1: Okay. So I agree that, you know, inflation existed before the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but I will, it also, I will push back on you and say that it, you know, definitely pushed things like food prices, energy prices, and metal prices higher almost immediately after it. Um, yeah the energy piece was more of a political response, but you know the wheat supply feels like that's because it's hard to farm your land while there's you know shells landing in your fields. so I do think there's you know there's some relationship there um that's you know the rest of it, I think I'm good with what you said, Derek, but uh, I, you know I'm gonna i don't we haven't said this on the uh, uh on the podcast yet, but uh, you know a lot of folks thought that the bluff from Putin was meant to deliberately push. Inflation higher, right? Whenever America seems to have an economic weakness, he's always tried to take advantage of that. Um, heck, I remember him saying in the middle of COVID, uh, when oil had dropped dramatically in price, his he came out and said, "Look, this is the time that we uh, we can break the frackers in America, right?" And he flooded the supply, you know, to drive prices lower. So I really did think um, maybe that's not a popular opinion. Maybe it is. I don't know, but I do think that. Um, it was part of his intention was to help, you know, continue to, you know, maybe put a little salt in the wound of the inflationary problems in America. But of course, it turns out his intention was much different. We didn't, you know, realize that at the time. Um, speaking of which, to our, uh, uh, our, our 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 developers that are helping us, you guys are still in our thoughts always. I'll leave it. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that, Derek. But besides that, I will I will agree with the rest of your points that you made
0: yeah, no, it's fair enough, and it's a fair point to make. And I mean, look, it, responses to anything, and whether it's traders buying and selling, in the end, it's market and emotions and and buying and selling that that makes the market. And people's decisions sometimes are expressed in the way they vote, and the way they vote is buying and selling shares. You know, you did mention some of the economic uh, implications. I also think getting back to you know maybe the supply side, and particular, you know, we were very early, I think earlier than anybody on like a, a normal mainstream financial uh, podcast or media talking about shipping and container rates. And we know since everyone's been talking about that. I don't know for sure yet. You know, China, the news is, and I'm just reading this off news reports, they've essentially locked down Shanghai. That's a city of over 20 million people. Uh, there's rumors they might lock down Beijing. You know, I, I don't follow this enough to be uh, call myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I did see some data that there's a lot of ships waiting off the coast of China. I, I don't know. Maybe this is something that uh, I you know inflation, the rate of change year over year based upon the inflation now cast by the Cleveland Fed, is expecting about eight point one four percent. That would be a lower rate of change. Than the previous month but i don't know i mean maybe some of this this stuff in china works its way into it um i don't know jay I, I i'm not convinced yet that we've seen the end of inflation i don't know if it's the top but some people are calling for it to be closer to the top than we've been i don't know Jay. if you have any thoughts on that
1: no i i uh i don't think the issues uh between you know, the other ones we just talked about i don't think they've worked themselves out yet I mean I know there's folks calling for peak inflation because we may get a lower rate of change uh uh coming out shortly but you know I don't see you know the 3% number anytime soon so you know regardless if it's you know flattening out a little bit cuz it's not that much of a dip right like what is the the you just said what 8 uh 8
0: plus 8.14 yeah 8 plus
1: yeah uh, okay like that's that's not much lower than uh you know we had last month and so you know I don't I don't know if it's um if it's peak or not, but regardless, still not great. It's still going to slow down, you know, economic activity, especially with, you know, the part of the population that is most impacted by inflation, um, which is a huge part of the US consumer base. So, you know, I uh I don't I definitely don't you know to me it's not over. We're not we're not seeing fives, you know, I don't think in the next month or so.
0: I think I, I would agree with that. Jay, you mentioned earnings I did want to bring real quick into the discussion as well. Uh, Refinitive, and I think this, they use IBE's data. Uh, They put every Friday, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes for everybody to take a look at, an earnings dashboard. And basically what they do is they take a blended um, quarter to date. And so you've got the remaining expectations for companies that haven't reported and the actuals. And so far, the blended earnings through last Friday was plus 8.3% on the S&P. Revenue is up plus 11.9%. I'm bringing this up, Jake, as you mentioned, earnings are still growing. It is interesting, by the way, a lot of people said, you know, financials would be the place to be if we got interest rates going up because they'd make more in loans, the spread on cash would be greater. They've been hurt by that, although others argued that we have a flattening yield curve. Financials, uh, that blended is down close to 19% year-over-year earnings growth. So, It is interesting. Yeah, to your point, yes, earnings are still growing. Uh, I know yesterday Google missed, but then they go and they announced, what was it, like a $90 billion buyback authorization? Uh, That that seemed to to temper that a bit. Uh, But yeah, Jay, I mean, and, and I guess there's two points here. Yes, earnings are growing. Energy, by the way, if you take out energy, the earnings don't grow as much. But financials, right? I mean, people would have thought financials and maybe the XLF ETF would have been much better off price-wise than they are right now, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, we speculated on the same thing while we didn't have a position on it. It certainly was something we were interested in looking at um, using the XLF, the financial uh, index, as kind of an offset for rising rates. And you know, that, that just hasn't been the case. Um, a few things to point out about that ETF, and I will give you 100% credit for this, is that there is a large Apple component to XLF. How is that the case? Well, there is a large Berkshire Hathaway holding in an XLF. And Derek, what is the percentage of Berkshire that uh, uh, th- that, that holds Apple?
0: Yeah, this was surprising. And, and obviously, we don't have up to date, up to the minutes. We don't know what's in the portfolio, but it was 47%, according to what I read uh, as of the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, crazy.
1: Yeah. So, like, you know, it's just one of those things that there's a lot of dynamics. Sometimes you got to dig into the details when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, the, those sector ETFs. And I get why Burke is in there, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that's why the ETF is down itself. I think there's things like yield flattening and potentially, you know, lower loan activity that can all contribute to, you know, the financials not doing as well when it comes to earnings. But, you know, generally, you think rising rates, banks earn greater net interest. Uh, income or NIM, net interest margin, uh, but in this case, it doesn't see, seem to be happening. Um, right, odd one there, odd one there. Um, can I pick out another odd one while we're talking specifics in the market here, Derek? That continues to, you know, befuddle me, and I think you know where I'm going. Absolutely. Yeah, um, we've been watching utilities and you know, scratching our head as to why they continue to go higher. Right, earnings on utilities are not growing. You've got. Higher cost input costs, obviously, you've got limitations on what you can earn as a utility, and you've got a rate sensitive uh, vehicle, right? Because of the dividends, yet all those things would, you know, generally be bearish against uh, uh, XLU. I'll use XLU as the guide here, but guess what? Not the case. XLU, you know, with the exception of the last couple of days, has pushed to new highs. You know, scratching my head on this one. I'm not sure if you want to comment on that one, but, you know, just another oddity in the market that sometimes what you think might be the case, you get the exact opposite.
0: I mean, let's look at, I think, uh, in Florida. So is it Next Energy? They're a Florida-based company. And I guess one could say, okay, well, energy companies are getting a bid, certainly because the, the increase in earnings uh, that energy is going to have. This one, this is where I always say, you know, I can play an analyst on TV, but I'm not an analyst. Like I'm not digging into the balance sheets and the businesses in these underlying companies like like some people do. So the question is, I mean, are they passing higher cost on to customers, right? Because a lot of these utilities are passing cost on to, to customers, right? So I agree. Maybe it's just getting a bid with the whole energy complex because normally, Jay, people buy energy and they might buy XLU for the dividend. And we've seen in the past when interest rates go up, these tend to fall because given the choice, you'd rather have a treasury bond at two and a half rather than an energy or a utility ETF yielding two and a half, right? So I agree. I, I haven't done the work on this, Jay, but I do agree it's a little bit of a head scratcher, right?
1: Yeah. A little head scratcher there. I know we got a little, we got a little deep on that one, but you know, something interesting to watch.
0: Uh, Just to tie a bow on the Berkshire Hathaway point too. It is interesting. So I said, you know, they, they at the end of the year um, were holding about 47% of their holdings were in Apple Berkshire makes up of the XLF, the, the financial ETF, they were 15.7 or 15.17% of the assets. So, you know, rounded up to half, you almost have, or you did. We don't know what they have now about a seven and a half percent allocation in the financial ETF to Apple. I mean, Apple payments. I guess you can make the argument there, right? But uh, yeah, and they hold Bank of America. Yeah, and they hold Bank of America too. So you're doubling up on Bank of America, right? So, um, and I think our point here is, you know, without we want to move on from this, but if you're trading ETFs, like you always got to look at the underlying, and and if there are anomalies like Berkshire take a look and see what are they holding. And sometimes you have different risks than you think, right? So Jay, uh, speaking of financials, and we said something that people thought would work and year to date, they have not been working. The other thing I wanted to bring up is, I don't know about you, but I've been getting some questions from, from advisors and clients on, hey, you know, I haven't been in commodities, but I'm thinking about getting in commodities now. And we know commodities certainly have had a good run, no doubt about it, but you know commodities over time uh, we were looking at some data, and this is uh, somebody did a blog post on this. they referenced data from Deutsche Bank and jay, you wanna you want to take this one and and kind of lay the the framework for what we're looking at here um, a little different yeah
1: yeah, no the, the information is definitely inter- interesting here you know it's when you th- why commodities right why do people think commodities are kind of a good investment and and certainly in times where you have you know potentially declining stocks declining bonds where else are you going to go some folks go to commodities because in this inflationary environment maybe that ends up being you know you want to own oil right or you want to own you know wheat or you you want to own you know precious metals but you know the thought here is is it really worth it over time is the return worth owning commodities and maybe there's a you know a week-long or you know month-long trade in there for you but is it worth owning them and when you when you look at commodities performance on an inflation uh, adjusted basis they actually perform pretty poorly compared to stocks and bonds on an after inflation basis so you know quick quick example here right like if we look at say the last Five years. Right. Commodities average per year on a after inflation basis about minus five and a half percent on a 10 year basis, like minus nine percent. The last 15 years, minus seven percent. You know, so it's, it's one of those things that um, if you've been long commodities for a long time because you think it's an inflation play, when you apply the inflation factor to it, they're actually not beneficial or constructive to growth. Compared to say stocks and bonds that have been constructive over those same times, so stocks same period of time up the la- over the last five years up ten percent, over the last ten years up ten and a half percent, over the last twenty five years up seven percent. So it's one of those things that while you know switching to commodities may seem to be uh, uh, you know wise in an inflationary environment on an inflation adjusted basis, they end up not providing a lot of benefit to the portfolio.
0: I mean. You and I will readily admit we don't know what's gonna happen with commodity prices on the short term. And everything we do is is built around buying and hedging and and being invested and staying invested, right? So, you know, I don't know what commodity is gonna do. It feels like people buying here were are a little late to the party. It's it's like the the guy selling TVs at the whiz in the nineteen nineties with a uh, a prospectus for the emerging markets dragon fund in his back pocket when emerging markets was already up 100 percent over the year.
1: That's that sounds like a real experience you, you had there, Derek. If, <laughs> the whiz. You want to tell me what the whiz was? Nobody beats the whiz.
0: Nobody beats the whiz. Uh, so the whiz was an electronics store. I don't, I, you know, I don't live on the East Coast anymore, but they they sold electronics, TVs, radios, stuff like that. So you go into the Wiz, kind of like an early Best Buy.
1: It's like a high pressure Best Buy. You go in and have some fun and negotiate for your TV yeah. or you sales people
0: condition? negotiating, literally negotiating with you. I don't know. I got to go talk to my boss. It's you know, it's at the end of the month. I don't know. You know, and so you're haggling with these people. It doesn't work that way anymore. But I remember this guy. He we start talking about what I, I don't know how we got there, and I noticed he had the the prospectus because it was sticking out of his pocket. I'm like, that's the Lynch Dragon Fund. And he's like, oh, yeah, they're only going to go up. They're only going to go up. They were already up 100%. Next year, they were down like 40%, 50%. I'm like, that's, that's always your contrarian indicator. So
1: it feels
0: high. You know, it feels high. I, don't, I have no idea what they're going to do. I really don't. I don't. I'm sorry. But uh, I do know over the last 100 years, you know, Jeremy Siegel is a big fan of this. Over 100 years, stocks based upon this data up 75 a half, you know, over 7.5% after inflation. Annualized commodities down one percent. So, to it always goes back, Jada. If if that's the thing historically that's been the best after inflation return over the long period, why not own more of that? And then why not own it and then hedge what you're afraid of directly on that? And it really comes back to the whole buy, you know, the buy and hedge methodology, right?
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. And listen, no one's saying that uh, commodities were a bad trade this year. Right, I mean, they're obviously up.
0: Would have been great. Go in your time machine and load up on those. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember exactly. You know, I don't remember which episode it was, Derek. I said, I think I take the other side of commodities. I guess I'm doing the same thing still, and I would have been incorrect when I am incorrect when when I said that on our contrarian corner session that we did uh, probably two months ago. But you know, long term, right? This is like you just nailed it. If 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 you're trying to grow your money over the long term, why don't why not go with the thing that has the greatest chance of success, right? And stocks have proven themselves to do it. Now it doesn't mean take all the risk associated with stocks, as you said. So limit the risk in the vehicle that you're in, right? Hedge directly on the market that you're invested in. And you could do that uh with options on the uh on the US stock market, which is our preference, because it's just worked more often, right? Like um I'm, I'm, I know it's 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 a little easy to say, just go with what works most often, but that's how easy it is, right? I tell folks all the time, go with what works more often than not, right? You don't have to be a wizard in the market to try to figure out what sector rotation is going to work or what asset rotation is going to work. Go with what what works most of the time. You know, most managers in our space don't beat the S&P 500. They just don't. So why not start with that? Because it works more often.
0: We actually did a, and I'll I'll link to this in the show notes as well, uh, a, a article on the zegafinancial.com blog. Um, And I think the premise, actually, no, we haven't put it there yet. Maybe we will. But here's, here's the data. We looked at like the last five or six years and we looked at the AGG, U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, right? Great proxy for, you know, you got treasuries, you got corporates, you got different stuff in there. And this year, no surprise, year to date, it's down on a real basis, on an after inflation basis, okay, no surprise, no surprise last year was down on a real you know return basis, and even the past four years, what was it like twenty you know zero point two percent zero point five percent after inflation so you know even in recent times, we just talked about commodities, just getting back to bonds uh, bonds at these low rates I, I'm you know who knows what's going to happen, but I'm going to say. I think there's no way they get the returns they have in the past at these low rates. And certainly on a real basis.
1: Yeah, no, look, I mean, you're not really going out on a limb there, Derek. And, uh, you know, we've been, you know, traveling uh, and doing seminars and talking to people about this, and we really do come down pretty hard on bond positions. But I, I think it's worth mentioning that that doesn't mean there isn't a place for bonds when you have a specific reason for them in a portfolio, right? We just... Got off a conversation with our investment committee where we discussed how using bonds, the actual say treasuries themselves that have a specific maturity date, you could structure defined outcomes around those, knowing that if you're willing to hold the bond to maturity, you have an expected return because once you buy that ret- once you buy that bond, you know what you're going to get at the end, right? If you can hold it to the end, to hold it to maturity. So, you know, while I think in general holding bond funds as a and you know as an allocation component um, is going to be really tough to provide value in the, in this environment that we have this year and next year, it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for them in spe- with specific uh, defined outcomes. Right? I don't know if you want to expand on that at all.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you're right on that, and and we use bonds as a funding source. We don't do it as as normal. I don't want to say normal advice, like the general use of a 60, 40 portfolio is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And the idea that bonds go up when stocks are getting hammered this year, that's not the case. Bonds may be causing the problem. Rates are causing interest rates and and things like that are causing the problem in, you know, the, the stock market, in my opinion, could be wrong, but that's my opinion. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it gets really interesting and we are option managers. You know, we, we really specialize in that, that domain. And so we can create bond-like positions using options and also utilize something like a treasury where we're stacking those two together and we're also defining the risk and limiting that risk a little bit more. It's just a, a really fancy way of saying a different way to be hedged because you're limiting the losses. So yeah, and, and I think the treasury, by the way, treasury going up, and being, I, I say this high of a yield, and I'm like smiling because really, like, is two and a half percent on a two year treasury a high yield? I mean, come <laughs> on, it's nothing. Sure, like, it's, no, you know, it's, it's not. really nothing. But it does open up some other possibilities, Jay. Maybe that's a topic for a, a future one. But um, I think for investors, this gets it, the possibilities a little more interesting than they've been. I don't. If you want to say anything on, on, on that. Um I did have a quick thing on on VIX before we wrapped up
1: though Jay but I'll I'll pass it to you first. Now let's let's move over to the VIX. That's where we beat up bonds what we said we could use yep. them in, with just you know certain uses So
0: last up. thing I want to bring up is uh you and I obviously watched the VIX the the volatility index which measures the 30-day implied volatility of a a group of options on the S&P 500 index. Just a just a quick observation. I don't, you know, I remember the VIX, like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. VIX was high, remained high, but I don't remember if I remember if I recall a time when the VIX has been this high and then keeps, you know, going back up to thirty, and then coming back down, going back up to thirty, as we've seen. I don't know if I'm wrong in my observation on that, but it it is high. But I feel like normally it's high and then it comes down. It it seems like it keeps wanting to go up. I don't know if you've noticed that, Jay, or if you have any thoughts.
1: Yeah, my, my thoughts on the VIX are that it kind of echoes in waves of periods of higher or elevated volatility and periods of lower volatility. And these are it doesn't mean you know the you know the one-week spikes, you know, don't exist. But um when you look back over, say the last 20 years, there are distinct areas. Of time or ranges of time where the VIX is, you know, relatively low and volatility is low, and you're kind of surfing around that 10 to 15 range most of the time, right? If you look at the lows of those periods, and then there's other times where the lows are much higher, right, uh, above 16, floating near 20. You know, we we I'm just I'm looking at the VIX chart here. You know, there have been very few days where the VIX has closed below 20 this year. That is, that is odd. But we started this period of higher volatility in February of twenty twenty and these periods of higher volatility to me last three to five years right That seems to be the general range. So take a look at a twenty year chart on the viX and you can see these periods of low vol and periods of high vol and I think we're in the middle of a of a of a period of higher volatility I think um uh, you know, the volatility kind of begets more volatility, right? It kind of does it to itself. That's it's one of those things. Um, it's like fear builds on itself. Uh and so it's it's not all that surprising. But I listen, I would agree with you, Derek. We're in a period of higher volatility. You know, that period started in February 2020. We're, you know, two years into it at this point. We've probably got, you know, another year, year and a half. And so If I was to okay, so what do I do with that information, right? Uh, Does it mean I should head? Sure, yeah. You want to, you know, manage your risk even more carefully in a period when volatility can work against you. By the way, when we talk about, maybe I shouldn't go too deep into this. When we talk about volatility, we're talking about kind of the, the 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 daily change or the rate of change in a portfolio, the rate of change in the market, right? And the wider. that that or the the higher that magnitude is, the higher volatility is. And volatility in general is bad for a portfolio. I mean, from a trading perspective, it creates plenty of opportunity. But, you know, portfolios that move plus or minus half a percent every day are much better off than portfolios that move plus or minus two percent a day. Right. The math just works against you. Right. And uh, we don't have to go into all the details on that. But um, it's not better to have plus two, minus two Than to have plus a half, minus a half, right? It's much better to have those lower volatility returns over time. And so you want to be careful and you want to protect yourself in periods of higher volatility. But that's not the only thing that you should do. I know I'm probably bleeding into a, a different topic here, Derek, but you want to have in your portfolio some sort of a strategy that can benefit or harvest higher volatility. And there's not a lot of places that Uh, that could do that. Options are a way to do it. If you're an options trader that likes to sell volatility, whether you're selling premium on calls or puts, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, Derek, people can reach out to you if they have questions about what that really means. But I, and you can give your details in a second there, but I do think, you know, I'll wrap this whole thought up. We're in a period of higher vol and you want to have strategies that can benefit from that options are one way to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's uh, Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com. That's D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Zega, Z is in Zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financial's up to you to get correct on the spelling. Um, you can email me and, and let me know about future topics for episodes. Uh, I do like getting those emails and sometimes we turn those in. Or if you want to find out a little bit more about how we hedge or sell of volatility uh, in some of our strategies, obviously, to take advantage of the heightened volatility. Happy to go over that with you and set up some time. Or just you know email me for movie recommendations. I'm happy to give those as well. And um, by the way, I, I, was, I saw Elon Musk. They, I think they sent another manned space mission. And I don't know if you get a chance to watch that Netflix documentary, but I was fascinated. I think it's called Returning to Space how they put the, the first astronauts back in space with SpaceX. Like it's, it's pretty, pretty high level stuff to, to design rockets that go into space. And then a rocket that comes you know, like the booster that comes back down and just lands itself. I don't know if you watched that Jay yet, but pretty fascinating SpaceX.
1: Yeah, I did. I did. I didn't watch it yet. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was recently uh, a little out of commission with a little surgery that I had. And so uh I didn't, I was not really in tune to taking, you know, something that deep on. I instead watched all three versions of the Lord of the Rings. I had a lot of time to kill. So.
0: Lord of the Rings.
1: <laughs> I, wow. I, yes. I had to catch up on that one. It's, it's been a while. But no, it's on my list, Eric. So for sure. I love watching the, uh, you know, I think the scientific stuff is amazing, right? And,
0: you know, I, I, people are pretty polarizing on, on Elon Musk. And I know he just uh, bought Twitter. It kind of changed my opinion on him. And I didn't have a strong opinion like other people, but I'm like it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating just how how they were able to accomplish that. And I guess the other thing I watched was We Crashed. I finished it. I, I'm I'm gonna say it's good, so I'll, I'll give that as a recommendation too.
1: Yeah, give it the, the the one through ten score that we yeah. Always
0: I don't know. I I give it I give it like a a solid seven and a half. I think.
1: Okay. Okay. So it's not Succession. It's not Billions, but it's still good.
0: It's good, and you know what I—I I mean, look, we we all know the story of Adam Newman, and and we crashed. Um, I I do think they, the the character that uh, Anne Hathaway plays, uh, uh, she plays the character that that's his wife. Uh, they they do make her look. Um, I don't think she the the way she played the character. She didn't come off that well. I don't know how much that of that is reality and stuff, but. It's fascinating, and and they have somebody who plays the character for Jamie Diamond in it too. So there's a really funny scene where he goes into a a regular Chase branch and asks for a loan. And I'll leave it there. I don't want to to spoil it. Um,
1: All right, I will catch up on that one as well. All
0: right, well, I think I think we've uh, if if the remaining listeners have not left, they will be leaving soon. So we'll probably call it there. Jay, appreciate you coming on again. And I think for everyone in the audience, like start to. You want to be watching inflation, you want to be watching GDP, and, and let's see whether good news is bad news, or, or bad news is good news, or bad news is bad news, or whatever the heck I'm trying to say. Jay, thanks again. Thanks, Derek. See you, everyone.